0: Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly.
1: A new sheriff has some bold ideas about how to rehabilitate inmates and what should be done at the county jail.
0: So some people say, well, why are you helping these people get a job? I have a hard time finding a job. My response would be, I'm more concerned about the inmate who doesn't have a job upon release, who doesn't have housing upon release, who doesn't have drug treatment or mental health support and like care coverage upon release. Those are the inmates. The ones that don't have that, those are the ones I'm worried about coming back.
2: What was so impressive about his painting?
3: You could see and you could feel the, the heart and soul that he put into his work. His landscape scenes were very bucolic, very serene, very somber tones in his palette. His work wasn't good because he was an African-American. His work was great because he was a dedicated painter, and that's all he wanted to do.
4: My kids miss him every day, so I let them know what they're doing and how they're doing, how grown they are, whatever. So I just want them to know I'm never going to forget him. I will never forget what happened. And I want everybody to know what a good person he was.
1: Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. We begin tonight
2: in Bristol County, Massachusetts, where for the first time in 25 years, there's a
1: new sheriff in town. Paul Hero, the former mayor of Attleboro, campaigned on running a department that's focused on rehabilitating inmates, and he has some ambitious ideas about what that looks like. Hero wants every inmate to leave the jail with a job, health care, and a place to live to many of his detractors that may seem like pie in the sky. But Hero is optimistic he can prove them wrong.
0: I have my own guiding principles. You know, public service is not about those who serve, it's about those who would be served. Um, Do more for others than you do for yourself.
1: Paul Hero, the new sheriff of Bristol County, has promised to run what he calls a more modern jail system. He wants to prioritize rehabilitating inmates but he knows he needs the support of his new colleagues to get it done
0: but then i also have guiding principles internally as well managing a jail never make decisions alone and always appreciate there's a reason for everything
1: harrow isn't afraid to make big moves soon after becoming sheriff he announced a plan to close the ash street jail in new bedford one of his ideas involves moving the roughly 100 inmates who are here into the former immigration detention center in Dartmouth known as the ICE facility.
0: So this is the other half of the ICE building and this is, as you can see, it's just a big open dormitory style room.
1: This facility has been vacant for almost two years. Haro says moving the inmates who are at the Ash Street Jail over here would allow all of the inmates to be on the same campus.
0: If we ever had a security incident, then you have more correctional officers on this campus, whereas Ash Street is a 15 minute drive from here. So it's, it, it's just better to have the operation all in one place.
1: Haro estimates that converting the former ICE facility into individual cells would cost about $10 million.
0: It's not the hardest place, no, it's, it's just old.
1: He's making his pitch to lawmakers.
0: It's old, we can't do as much programming here.
1: Haro says it's a move that would quickly pay for itself. Meals would no longer need to be transported three times a day to New Bedford. Plus, the Ash Street Jail is more than 10 times bigger than the ICE facility. When you ran for sheriff, you would not commit to closing the Ash Street Jail. Less than two weeks after becoming sheriff, you announced you have a plan to close it. What changed in those two weeks? Because that was a pretty quick decision. Right.
0: So when I ran, uh, when I was running, uh, you know, I recognized that if I say I'm going to close ash street and i didn't have all the facts you know so i didn't have all the facts so i didn't want to commit to something so what i have right now is a a vision it's a it's a hope it's a plan but it's not a decision because i can't make the decision alone i need the uh, governor to be on board and i need the state legislature to be on board with that as well
1: the 46 year old democrat says he also wants to improve the services that inmates receive while they're incarcerated
0: so we have 700 inmates and so every single inmate would know where they're gonna go for housing, healthcare, and a job after release. And so that's a modern approach to discharge planning. But while people are here, we're also offering as much treatment as we can for mental health issues, anger management, addiction services.
1: You know you'll have people who hear this who say, Sheriff, you really are making the jail sound like a somewhat desirable place for people who have nowhere else to go to end up.
0: It's. Called a house of correction. We should be correcting. You know, it's a department of correction at the state level. We should be correcting.
1: He wants caseworkers and employers to work with inmates to help them secure jobs upon their release. But he needs the money and resources to do that, and that could be a hard sell.
0: I can't do this by myself. I, the inmates have to also want this support. And so we're going to make it available to everybody who does. But also, that, it doesn't stop there. I also need the resources from the legislature to make this happen. And I need the outside uh, groups, the nonprofits, the third parties, to also come into the jail system, develop those relationships with the inmates. So when the inmates are released, they say, I've got somebody who is going to help me get back on my feet on the outside.
1: But is there another jail system somewhere in Massachusetts or somewhere in the country that's doing what you're talking about that you can point to and say they've done this successfully? We want to model that?
0: I don't know of anywhere, but it doesn't mean they're not doing it.
1: One month after Haro defeated Thomas Hodgson, the sheriff who had the job for 25 years showed him around the jail and introduced him to members of the sheriff's office.
0: We had a really tough campaign. We really beat each other up, and that's what campaigns do. Once the election was over... He was professional. I'd like to think I was professional, and the election was over. And so we said, okay, now we have to do a transition. And so he was very cordial, very polite. He was always a gentleman. I can see why a lot of people really liked him.
1: Both men know there are serious issues facing the department. Just one day after Haro became sheriff, a 41-year-old inmate was found dead in his jail cell in an apparent suicide. Since 2000, the sheriff's office says, 29 inmates have taken their own lives.
0: We always have to be appropriately self-critical. And so we have to always say, where can we be better? How can we do better? And so that's what I'm gonna do, is I'm gonna bring in uh, a third party. It's a nationally renowned expert. And so I want to bring him on board, have him look at our system, and then come back and say, this is where your blind spot is. This is what you were missing.
1: Harrow has a master's degree in criminology and spent several years working for jail and prison systems in Philadelphia and Massachusetts. But he admits his career path is unconventional. Before becoming sheriff, he spent five years as the mayor of Attleboro and also served as a Massachusetts state representative for five years.
0: I don't know if there is a conventional path to politics. When I was in an undergrad, I studied psychology and neuroscience. I wanted to do something with human behavior and the brain and you know I have a degree in psychology degree in neuroscience and so I was looking at going to medical school or doing a PhD in neuroscience or something like that. But then September 11th happened.
1: 15 of the 19 hijackers on September 11 were from Saudi Arabia. Hero wanted to learn more about them. He lived there for 6 months in 2003 teaching English. He remembers what it was like there after compounds were bombed.
0: There were checkpoints brought up everywhere, and I was numerous times pulled over and, you know, subjected to searches. And I've had a 50 cal uh, gun mounted on top of a Humvee pointed at me before. And so why? And because I was a white Westerner in Saudi Arabia, which was kind of foolish because the perpetrators of the uh, compound attacks. Didn't share my profile, but they, they just their security operation was not as professional.
1: His fascination with non-Western cultures has taken him around the world, including a nine-day trip to North Korea when he was in graduate school. It was an eye-opening experience and left him resolved to make conditions better for inmates in the United States.
0: There are some people here in the United States who, when they say this is how a jail or a prison should be run and how. It should, they actually describe what's done in some of these other places, and I remind them of that. I said, that's not who we are as a country.
1: Harrow promised voters that if reelected, he wouldn't serve more than two six-year terms as sheriff. When he leaves the office, he hopes the county jail has a strong record of rehabilitating inmates.
0: So some people say, well, why are you helping these people get a job? I have a hard time finding a job. My response would be, I'm more concerned about the inmate who doesn't have a job upon release who doesn't have housing upon release, who doesn't have drug treatment or mental health support and like healthcare coverage upon release. Those are the inmates, the ones that don't have that, those are the ones I'm worried about coming back.
2: Up next, Providence is called the creative capital And no wonder, it boasts the Rhode Island School of Design and Museum, Trinity Rep, dozens of galleries, and for nearly 150 years, the Providence Art Club. It's one of the oldest in the nation. Tonight, a look inside at the talent and tolerance of its founding members and its influence on the art scene today. Behind the big green door of the Providence Art Club lies a canvas of contemporary galleries painting classes, old world dining rooms, and a collection of works by its members stretching back decades. Dan Meschnig has belonged for almost 40 years. It
5: seems like you're in a time machine and there's some ambiance that comes from even the foyer and you look up the stairs and And you you see time going by. In
2: 1880, when women didn't even have the vote and black artists were practically non-existent, a group from the east side of Providence made a bold stroke.
5: The art club here was founded by 16 people and six were women. And they were not all artists. There were patrons involved. Founded for art culture, that's the mission. But they also wanted the camaraderie of people that felt the same way about life and what they did, you know, and they made a great time of it.
2: Anne Meshnick says many of those great times happened here in the tiny cabaret room. There are stories of early members smoking long clay pipes, which continue to line the walls today, along with vintage wine bottles that hang from the ceiling. Overseeing all the festivities, a devil painted in the rafters. But as unconventional as some of the antics may seem, the founders were serious about their art and well-respected in the community. One of their leading members, black artist Edward Mitchell Bannister, oil painter, abolitionist, philanthropist. Of all the striking silhouettes of artists and patrons lining the walls of the club, Bannister's has a distinction. The number one indicating he was the prime mover of the Providence Art Club. In a day when we're actively discussing representation in the arts community, the Providence Art Club, it seems, was ahead of its time.
5: Oh, without
2: question. Nancy Gosher-Thomas is both artist and former president of the Providence Art Club. Why were they willing to rally around Edward Bannister, a black artist? Well, I think
3: that they saw that he was an artist of, uh, of note. They recognized You know, who he was. Artists don't see black and white. It was his commitment to his work and everything that he did to help create the New England cultural community.
2: The rural New England community and Narragansett Bay shoreline are prominent themes in Bannister's landscapes. There are some on display at the Providence Art Club, many more hang at the Smithsonian. What was so impressive about? his painting. You could see and you could
3: feel the, the heart and soul that he put into his work. His work just exudes an atmosphere that is hard to attain. And you have to remember too, he did not go to Europe to study art. And so a lot of this was experimentation. His landscape scenes were very bucolic, very serene, very somber tones. And his palette. His work wasn't good because he was an African American. His work was great because he was a dedicated painter. And that's all he wanted to do.
2: And Gosher Thomas says Bannister's fierce dedication was fired up by an article he read in the New York Herald in 1867.
3: Quote, the Negro seems to have an appreciation for art while being manifestly unable to produce it. End quote. Ironically, less than a decade later, in 1876, Bannister was the first African-American to receive
2: a first prize medal award. It happened at the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition, and it caused a sensation when the judges announced the winner from hundreds of artists entered in competition.
3: He went up to get his award, and they were a little taken aback and said, this can't, you know, this can't be right. He's a, he's a, he's a, a, a black man. They wanted to rescind it. They wanted to take it away. And there were white artists that came in and said, "No, he's getting his award," and he did.
2: Bannister's award certificate is one of the Art Club's most prized possessions. Another artist who made her mark on the Providence Art Club was sculptor Florence Brevoort Kane.
5: She was born in the late 1880s to an extraordinarily wealthy family in New York City.
2: Her family summered in Narragansett. Kane was disabled after a childhood illness left her deaf and unable to talk. Yet her talent spoke volumes. She was sculpting in France when Hitler rose to power and started stealing artwork.
5: Her father realized what was happening and he wanted her home. But she was working on all these pieces, so they buried the work that she was working on on the property in Cannes. And when the war was over, they sent an agent back and they uncovered all of that work and it was sent back to the United States. Well, she became a member in the late 1940s. She was readily accepted.
2: Kane's sculptures are prominently displayed in the Angels Lane room at the art club. There are horses, a likeness of her baby brother, and other works. Her bust of President Eisenhower resides in the White House. And when Kane died, she left a substantial bequest, starting the endowment for the art club. Another legacy was left by the artist who crafted these dragon and irons.
5: It looks like they're spitting fire at you. They're really, really cool. And they were handmade by Sidney Burley.
2: Burley was a founding member of the art club. The landmark fleur-de-lis building was Burley's studio. It is one of the four historic buildings that house the Providence Art Club. Inside the fleur-de-lis, Burley continued his dramatic dragon theme. Upon his death, Burley willed the property to the Art Club with the stipulation it must always remain an artist's studio. Currently, Anthony Tomaselli is the artist in residence. Popular Rhode Island painter Maxwell Mays also worked in this studio, on story-like depictions of New England scenes. The Providence Art Club celebrates its members and patrons, present and past. A current project is honoring the life of Edward Bannister. This is a miniature of what will soon be a fixture in Market Square near the Rhode Island School of Design Auditorium.
3: The wonderful thing about this sculpture is that it's not a monument. He's not standing on a pedestal looking down at people. He's actually sitting on a bench, kind of waiting for people to sit next to him. He has a sketch pad in hand, and on the sketch pad is a sketch of his wife, Christiana Cartel.
2: The sculpture is being cast life-size in bronze at a Massachusetts foundry. It's the finishing touch for a man whose talent and tenacity broke down barriers, leaving a legacy that's not lost on all those drawn to visit the art club.
1: We now turn to a tragic event that happened 20 years ago this week. On February 20, 2003, a fire at the station nightclub in West Warwick claimed 100 lives and injured more than 200 others. The fire was started by a pyrotechnic display that quickly spread to foam insulation. Panicked concert goers tried to escape, but many were trapped at the club's front door. In the years following, there were lawsuits, jail sentences, and settlements connected to the catastrophe. Senior producer Justin Kenny has been visiting the Station Fire Memorial, which sits on the very site where the nightclub stood. In recent weeks, he spent time with loved ones of the victims who seek solace and remember all those who were lost.
6: My name's Kimberly Beck, I'm from West Warwick, and I lost my sister Kelly Vieira in the station fire. Well, for me, she not only was my big sister, she was my best friend, and she was like a second mom. We were very close, she was a soft-spoken, non-judgmental, really kind, big-hearted person who just devoted herself to her family and her work. and Highly intelligent, even though you'd never know because she was so quiet. We were close, so I wish she was still here. She has a granddaughter named after her who's a senior in high school. It would be wonderful, and I just became a grandmother. It'd be wonderful for her to be here through all those milestones that her children went through and how the family dynamic is. I think I've pretty much gone through a lot of the emotions. Initially, um, you know, the devastation. It was such a shock. It was so sudden and unexpected to the anger to find out about the foam, about the door, about the fire marshal. All those factors that contributed to what happened. I was angry for a long time and then you you have to let go of the anger so it doesn't consume you. And then you grieve with sadness a lot because every holiday or a special occasion, you can't share anymore, you can't pick up the phone, you can't drive to her house. So there's still days when it's hard, but you do tend to carry on with your life as you know she would want you to. I've always done my best to look after her girls and her granddaughters. So there's still sadness, but there's, there's memories here too. I come here and we talk about the memories of how often we came here and enjoyed ourselves and had some great nights. So it's bittersweet.
4: I come here pretty much on the daily. I just kind of swing by or sometimes I come just to sit, talk about my bad day or what's going on. Um, You know, my friends were here, they lost their lives and it makes me feel better to talk to them and let it go. So what's bothering me gets released here with them because that's what I would have done prior to the fire. So, you know, this is where I find my happy place where I'm comfortable. My name is Sharo Laurent, and I'm from Rhode Island, originally from Pawtucket. Now I live in Charlestown. Kevin Washburn, who was my closest friend, um, he lost his life that night. Just before his birthday, he would have been, um, you know. He was kind of the crazy part of my life. We had fun, we'd come out every weekend, we'd meet and we'd come to the station or we'd go somewhere else and, you know, he was my closest friend. I usually don't talk about it so I don't cry when I come here, but Kevin Washburn was one of my favorite people in the world. I miss him every day. He was my confidant, my friend, my party goer, my... So I just come to talk to him when I'm fighting with my husband, when I'm having a bad day when work was bad. He was the godfather to my oldest children. He wasn't a frequenter of the station, but he passed away that evening, and um, my children lost their godfather that night. My kids miss him every day, so I let them know what they're doing and how they're doing. How grown they are and whatever. So I just want him to, I, know, I want him know I'm never going to forget him. I will never forget what happened. And I want everybody to know what a good person he was. Squiggy, I won't forget you. That's what I tell him every time I see him. It's a hard one for me. So I just sit and talk to them. They calm me down and make my day feel good. So having this memorial is amazing for me because I have a place where I can talk to them still. They're here, as far as I'm concerned, they're here. This is where they were last seen. This is where they last were. So for me, this is where they are. And I'm so thankful they built this. It's beautiful and it's a great, great thing for them. And it memorializes them forever. People won't forget what happened.
6: The memorial means a lot, it's, it's beautiful. Um, it's a peaceful, tranquil place. I can come and sit and talk to my sister and the grounds, the park, it's just beautiful to, to walk through. I also feel it's important for everyone else who goes up and reads the timeline to, to read it, to understand it and so that we never forget the hundred angels that we lost.
1: We'd like to extend our thanks to Charo Laurent and Kimberly Beck for sharing their stories with us. And that's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle San Miguel.
2: And I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast on your favorite streaming platforms. Thank you and good night.